the most profound results I see are in, are in this combination. Mm. Um, plant-based whole foods diet. Um, I mean, exclusively. Mm -hmm. um, daily exercise, focusing on cardio, but doesn't have to be exclusive to cardio. Um, a meditation program mm. twice a day, depending on how they're doing it. And a mindfulness-based movement on top of that. So yoga, tai chi, or so forth. And it's really that, that combination of all those things. Now you want to throw in other stuff. Other stuff tends to, to, to fit into that. So stuff like sleep hygiene and not eating too late. And, and keep, those things usually fit into that lifestyle. Um, mm -hmm. but you put that all together and that's, that is the lifestyle that like, it, it checks all the boxes. Um, I guess you got to take some B12 with that, but sure to that, <laughs> it, it pretty much checks all, checks all the boxes, right? You know, we're, we're feeding our gut microbes, we're setting our circadian rhythm, we're reversing insulin resistance. Um, mm -hmm. We're not slowing down our metabolism as fast as we otherwise would have if we starved ourselves or went on a ketogenic diet, for instance. Um, uh, we are making ourselves mindful, right? Both in terms of like the physical therapy, the brain and meditation, but also in a mindfulness-based movement as well. And that allows your, your brain is plastic and you kind of rewire over time. And so when impulses come in, whether it's for anxiety or depression or arguments or panic attacks or migraines or, um, or you know, cravings, uh, we get that brief pause and, and mm -hmm. it allows the brain to, to get used to tolerating whatever you're sitting with. Um, so you put that all together and you have the chemical infrastructure, you have the negative calorie balance, you have, and you have the kind of neuro, neuro hormones that, that set you up for success. On the Healthy Human Revolution podcast, Dr. Lori Marbus interviews nutrition and lifestyle medicine experts and extraordinary guests whose informative and inspiring stories will empower you with the knowledge to transform your life and health. I'm Dr. Lori Marbus, and I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Jamie Kane. How are you today? Good. How are you doing? Great. Well, I'll tell you, I'm so excited about your interview because I interviewed you briefly for our digest because you had given the journal, the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention, an article on obesity, but beyond caloric restriction. So you're the chief of obesity medicine at Hofstra um, Northwell School of Medicine in New York. And so I can't wait to pick apart your brain and see what you can help us with. Um, but could, first of all, I'd like to get to know you as a person and maybe look, can you tell us the story of why you wanted to become a doctor? Why well, I want to become a doctor. I think it was guilt. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, to kind of, right. I, I, I grew up thinking that I always needed to help people um, and that I didn't feel comfortable you know, with, if you grow up with certain opportunities and you have a brain and a conscience, I think you kind of owe it to, to help out. And so um, I, that was really the, probably the primary impetus um, was, was like finding a way that I, I thought, given my skill sets, I would be able to help people the most. And that's, that's what I landed on. Yeah. Fantastic. That, that's original, originally, right? And then as time goes on, things, things morph and then. And then it kind of became a little more revolutionary. You know, how do yeah. I take the way we're doing it and try to fix it? <laughs> Absolutely. It's uh, you go in idealistic, you, then you're like, oh, and then you're like, oh, there is another way, which we're going to get into. Right. Um, are you the first doctor in your family? I am. I actually have a first cousin who subsequently became a doctor, but I was the first. Fantastic. Yeah, I was the first to go to college and then my daughter's in medical school now, so I'm so excited. <laughs> Walking her down the path of lifestyle medicine. So which we get to now you practice. Can you tell us first of all, what is obesity medicine? Because maybe someone isn't familiar with those that terminology together. Sure. It's it's a new unfortunately it's a new field. Uh, I say it's unfortunate just because the one wouldn't have thought of a need for obesity medicine until the last few decades when the, you know, the crisis really exploded. Um, but it, it's the practice of, you know, from a medical standpoint, not a surgical standpoint, uh, the management of, of obesity. And as opposed to like the older terms, which were bariatric medicine, which really kind of the definition would be you're focusing on weight loss. Here we're focusing on the whole, the whole uh, person. So there are several diseases um, associated with 
uh, obesity and the lifestyles associated with obesity. Uh, and there's a lot of bias against patients with obesity. In fact, actually studies have shown that there's a lot of bias even within obesity medicine towards patients with obesity. But oh, wow. uh, patients' complaints of pain and patients other, otherwise, their uh, complaints in a doctor's office are, are not met as seriously. Um, mm -hmm. And so being able to take care of the comorbidities and the obesity itself it can be very helpful from a specialist. And now there are, um, the American Board of Obesity Medicine, I think is certified roughly 3,500. I might get that number wrong because the number grows um, and that's around the country. And, and it, it's the various levels of how people practice within that, within that realm. I see. Now, is this just an internal medicine specialty? Like you do internal medicine residency or can any specialty uh, so, a fellowship so, or how do you get trained? Right. So right now, the way it works is through the American Board of Obesity Medicine. If you are a licensed physician uh, in a specialty, you can sit for the boards given a couple of criteria. So you can you do a fellowship. Um, we have a fellowship at, at uh, Northwell. Um, I think we were roughly the 11th or so fellowship in the country. Now I think they're closer to about 17. Um, but that's only putting out a small number of the, the specialists. Other people, they have to sit for a certain amount of CME or do a fellowship in a related field, such as endocrinology, uh, mm -hmm. that would have enough hours of, of obesity in addition to sitting for the boards. Um, but other people just do CME. And there were a whole host of us who predated the fellowship. So <laughs> we kind of got grandfathered in based on, you know, we took the CME and we passed the exam and now a lot of us are making the exams. Well, that's cool. That might be something I'll look into. So yeah. awesome. I'm family medicine. So, you know, there's some specialties yeah, so, that right. are limited. Right. There's not a, I, I don't think that, I would say the majority of people are not necessarily internal medicine, but they'd be primary care of some sort. So there's some right. OBGYNs and then a lot of internal medicine and family practice and med peds, pediatrics. Cool. That, that would be the, the, the lion's share of the, of the participants. Fantastic. Okay. That is fantastic. I mean, it, it's such an important field. Do you know what the statistics, the most current statistics are on obesity in the United States by any chance? I, it's, it depends on how exactly you're, what you're defining. Uh, but if you look at overweight and obesity and, and what's called normal weight obesity, which would be people who kind of physiologically are obese, they might have central adiposity, but because they're super skinny, or based on their, their race and ethnicity, you know, they, they might carry less weight, but a higher risk of, of diabetes, metabolic mm -hmm. syndrome, coronary disease, and so forth. It's over 70%, maybe up to about 73% of the country, which is wow. interesting because often, often tell me, well, I just want to be like everyone else. I don't have to think about this. I'm like, well, everyone else now, that's, that's the norm. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. And exactly, and I think that's part of the issue is that all those chronic diseases that come along with obesity, which we can maybe dive in a little to a little bit, has become normal. Like people accept that they they become diabetic or they accept they have high blood pressure and these risks for heart disease, which is, I think, unacceptable because it shortens their lifespan. It makes less quality of life. But can you describe a little bit of what those diseases are that are associated with obesity? Yeah, so the, probably the number one disease you can think of is diabetes. And you see the, the curves of the explosion of obesity from the 1970s to now um, pretty much is, has a linear correlation to the diabetes epidemic. Mm -hmm. um, so that's gonna be the, the, the biggest correlation, but you can, there's not an organ system that's spared. So um, any, anything that would involve insulin resistance, so think like, Fatty liver, hypertension, um, diabetes would be kind of on one spectrum, but then there's a huge risk of any vascular disease. Mm. Um, so uh, coronary disease, uh, carotid disease, um, at least 13 types of cancers have been identified as being strongly associated with obesity. And of those, only one is not continuing to go up, even though we're focusing on these. Uh, and that's... that's wow cancer and that's probably because colon cancer is so heavily screened now. So you know the the people are getting precancerous lesions whereas with other situations they're not. Um, you know we're, we're talking about doing work on with um, 
kind of identify different dietary patterns and and how that would affect colon cancer, um, and then trying to create protocols for people with endometrial cancer, which is hugely correlated to weight. Um, so, but but uh, all, we're also talking about arthritis, autoimmune disease, um, just you name an organ system, renal failure. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Everything. So that is Sleep really interesting. Huge, right? So. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sleep apnea is is oh. so. Yeah, when I was in the, I was active duty Air Force and sleep apnea was one of the major reasons people would get discharged from the active duty. Um, so I was on the board that, yeah, it I was think be a little more aggressive about screening people if you start seeing train accidents. Uh, yeah. It was a, a train accident within the last five years here on one of our commuter trains and um, someone going about two and a half times the speed limit around a turn early in the morning on a weekend and it was, it, you know, someone with sleep apnea. That wasn't being oh true. my goodness yeah i mean you definitely i mean you, i mean if you think about it active duty you don't want someone driving a tank or shooting a gun that has sleep apnea you can't deploy with you know a cpap machine so it's uh and these are younger people I and mean, we're talking people in their 30s and early 40s um so i'm curious about the colon cancer just kind of backtracking a little bit because you know i, I can't remember which journal it was um, came out with a statistic between 18 and 35, that cohort has the highest risk of colon cancer now in the United States than any other cohort. You may know the where it came from. Um, yes, left me. But those are where my kids, my kids are in their 20s, and that's really frightening to think that such a young generation is going to be, a, you know, a, a afflicted with such a, a really can be very serious um, diagnosis. Is there, do you have any insight on why that might be? Is it obesity or is it something else or is it all well, related? The question is, is so one thing that, that uh, I, I do a lot of speaking about how, like, I don't like to blame stuff only on obesity, right? So mm. obesity might be a marker for things. Um, right. But well, if you like look at, yeah. And so people often think, well, they, they come to me from specialists to then, to then say, okay, if you just lose weight, it'll take care of us. Well, yeah. I mean, statistically, like fatty liver gets better when you lose weight, seemingly by any means. But if the underlying causes are oxidative stress and insulin resistance, which also seem to be the same part, same risk factors for obesity and diabetes and so forth, then, mm -hmm. then okay, well, what if the diet is the opposite, right? You have a, mm -hmm. a kind of low fiber, high set fat diet, low in antioxidants, well, is it the antioxidants that are doing all the help or is it that you're avoiding some of the damage, right? And so the, the same people that are eating some, some of those dangerous foods are gonna be at the same risk of becoming obese. So I, I don't think it, it's to say that obesity is not a, not a, a factor. It's just, I think it, it's, there's a lot of chicken and egg stuff going on there. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I, I gotta say, I, I can't tell you the only, the, the whole reason why younger people would be getting colon cancer now as compared to before. Um, I mean, I definitely people are, are, are interested in, in some of the causal mechanisms. Right. Yeah. I, I think, I've, I mean, my own speculation is obviously dietary change, right? So I know my children's generation didn't, is not eating the same that we did when, at least when I did when I was a kid or our grandparents. Granted, you know, we had processed food, but it was certainly not readily available. And, we didn't have the money <laughs> to go buy all that stuff. And it was not as prevalent in our society and it was much smaller packaging. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's just so scary. It's, it's frightening. So obesity, how would, you know, it isn't, it's just, it isn't just, I think part of the problem that in medicine is we siloed everything and nobody's talking, you know, diabetes, you go see your diabetes doctor, you go see your lung doctor, you go see your kidney doctor. All of that is so interrelated. Um, and I mean, it sounds like this is kind of what something that you like to educate your patients for, but can you describe maybe if a patient comes to see someone like you in, in a setting where you really focus on lifestyle medicine, especially what they can expect and what's the discussion that occurs? Well, um, 
So when, when someone comes in, I, I guess we, we try to separate out and, and, and what it looks like now for me is very different than it would look like say five years ago because there's so much teaching involved now. Um, we have a fellowship, we have residents, we have nurse practitioners. I mean, it, it's, it's a very big teaching involvement uh, environment. And so very often patients are gonna see more than one provider in a visit. Mm -hmm. uh, but really try to focus on the very first part of a visit. Uh, no, we're, we're lucky that, that uh, we have more time than the average place does for an initial visit. We get an hour. Um, but uh, we try to make sure that we're separating it out, like finding out what's going on from the, the education and negotiation phase. <laughs> because mm -hmm. um, what ends up happening is you can get caught up and you end up missing big picture stuff. So mm -hmm. someone comes in, often we'll have uh, a six pages or so, and we're, we're revamping this of questionnaires and information. And this gets patients thinking, it gets a lot of information, takes away some of the boring questions we'd have to ask, but it gets, it gets people thinking already, all right, well, here's some of the stuff I'm gonna have to think about, here's stuff that is, that's interrelated about mm -hmm. their medical history, their diet history, their family history, their weight history, what they do for exercise, how much TV they watch, how's their sleep, so forth. Um, so we try to gather all that information and see, okay, what are the risk factors? What, what is going on in terms of their medical comorbidities? Are they on medications that cause weight gain? Or do they have other risk factors? Um, what is their lifestyle like? Um, there are other risk factors just besides what you eat. Right? So people that, that, um, that work nights have a huge increased risk of, of obesity, right? So we, we try to get what the whole picture looks like and then we, we examine them and then um, and then really the, the next part is going to depend on who the patients are. It, you get a kind of feel for who you're dealing with. And I, I try not to make the judgment, oh, this person is, is smart enough or worthy of getting all the education that I'm willing to give and this person's not. But if someone has a medical background, I can use terminology a little more freely. Right. Um, um, but I, I like to explain, okay, these are the things that cause obesity. These are the particular, these are the particular um, things that make it unique in your case. And let's talk about what's, what's on the table here, right? And so mm -hmm. uh, these are the foods associated with, with gaining weight. These are the foods associated with insulin resistance. These are, um, you know, this is the, generally the amount of exercise that people need long-term. We might not get you there now, it might take a year or two, but this is what you need. Um, and just because we focus on lifestyle doesn't mean we ignore medication. So if someone has, um, someone has profound insulin resistance or they have say polycystic ovarian syndrome, where the insulin resistance often is not just, uh, doesn't just respond to diet and exercise. You know, I, I think it's, we're, we're blessed that we actually can combine the lifestyle with other, other things that fix the parts that we can't fix. Right. Uh, we have that, that whole conversation. And sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes people are very much, um, you know, opposed to medication and procedures and so forth. And other people kind of come interested in it no matter what we have to say. Um, and the, the general take is no matter how we approach this, whether it's meds, surgery, procedures, none of it, you got to fix the lifestyle stuff anyway, because those, those are people who can keep the weight off. And so there's a lot of that, that conversation happening over and over and over again. Mm. And, and uh, yeah, and that's, that's where we start. And then we okay. try to pretty frequently to, uh, you know, it's one thing if we you just give someone a piece of paper with <laughs> some guidelines and send them off, you know, if it was that easy, people would read books and be fine, right? So right. we try to, try to keep them in every, the, our higher intensity patients tend to be every other week. Say someone's on insulin and one of our first goals is to get them off insulin. So we gotta be super cautious with that. And so we see them every week or two in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise it's about every four weeks or so. Okay. And then as far as, I don't know if you can share any patient stories of where lifestyle really was where the key approach and what their results were, Do you, or can you give sure. us a kind of a, a general outcome of what happens with patients and timeline? Yeah. So the timelines are, are we're, we're very cautious in saying, you know, anytime you hear someone say we have this diet and expect to lose 20 pounds in three weeks, or I, I mean, that's all nonsense. The only way you're losing that much weight is when you're losing a lot of lean mass, which we're not interested in. Um, I would say, if I look at the most successful patients I've had, and I'm judging that by saying people with, with morbid, morbid obesity who've lost over 100 pounds, sometimes over 200, um, who lost weight and kept it off, 
interestingly, most of them did not use medications. Um, and uh, every one of them became a heavy exerciser long-term. Mm. And so, you know, I've been criticized before when I've gone, done lectures and been asked to bring patients along, well, your patient seems so obsessive, but the reality is that without a lot of exercise, it's very hard to sustain tremendous weight loss like that. Hmm. Um, but I would say that the more successful patients, they tend to buy in pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, they get involved in lifestyle. Um, some of them plant-based, some of them not. Um, though everyone ends up eating less animal over time. Mm -hmm. um, there usually is a system in place, a lot of tracking, you know, keeping diet logs and, um, and then about two pounds a week tends to be a, the cruising pace that seems to be associated with the most mm -hmm. sustainable large scale weight loss. Mm -hmm. But, but Absolutely. I wouldn't say that, that that's not a, um, a controlled environment where we can say that, that two pounds a week is better than one pound or three pounds. And, right. you know, it's possible there are, there are other ways of doing it. Um, right. Sometimes it's hard to go more than that because if someone comes to you at 420 pounds, it's not always so easy to, to get a lot of exercise in. So Right. No, I one of my heaviest patients was 506 pounds. She lost 50 pounds the first six weeks in 214 months. She's down 280 now. Yeah. Mm. She's doing great. Um, but now we've got the skin issues and all these other situations yeah. to deal with. Um, so as far as when you have... Um, when you describe lifestyle, so you're talking about exercise, you're also saying nighttime risk factors. So what would be a quote unquote perfect lifestyle where someone's metabolically going to be primed or <laughs> not okay, ourselves well, at, you know, the, the most, so rather than talk about the biggest weight loss, mm. I'd say the most, the most profound changes I see because it affects the brain as well mm. is so I've had patients come to me with anxiety disorders a lot of psychosomatic issues and I don't mean that with a negative connotation I mean just mind-body connected issues so things like migraines irritable bowel panic attacks um who did not did not want to be on any form of medication whether it be for anxiety weight loss whatever. the most profound results I see are in are in this combination mm. um Plant-based whole foods diet, um, I mean exclusively, mm -hmm. um, daily exercise, focusing on cardio, but doesn't have to be exclusive to cardio, um, a meditation program mm. twice a day, depending on how they're doing it, and a mindfulness-based movement on top of that, so yoga, tai chi, or so forth. And it's really that, that combination of all those things. Now, you want to throw in other stuff. Other stuff tends to, to, to fit into that. So stuff like sleep hygiene and not eating too late and, and keep, those things usually fit into that lifestyle. Um, mm -hmm. but you put that all together and that's, that is the lifestyle that like, it, it checks all the boxes. Um, I guess you gotta take some B12 with that, but short of that, <laughs> it, it pretty much checks all, checks all the boxes, right? You know, we're, we're feeding our gut microbes, we're setting our circadian rhythm, we're reversing insulin resistance. Um, mm -hmm. We're not slowing down our metabolism as fast as we otherwise would have if we starved ourselves or went on a ketogenic diet, for instance. Um, uh, we are making ourselves mindful, right? Both in terms of like the physical therapy of the brain and meditation, but also in a mindfulness-based movement as well. And that allows your, your brain is plastic and you kind of rewire over time. And so when impulses come in, whether it's for anxiety or depression or arguments or panic attacks or migraines or um, or you know, cravings, uh, we get that brief pause and, and mm -hmm. allow the brain to, to get used to tolerating whatever you're sitting with. Um, so you put that all together and you have the chemical infrastructure, you have the negative calorie balance, you have, and you have the kind of neuro, neuro hormones that, that set you up for success. So there's a few questions there that prompted in my head. You had mentioned the ketogenic diet. Does this slow down your metabolism? Yes. Can you tell us, oh, this is good. Could you please explain that? <laughs> yes, I mean, there've been studies that actually have demonstrated that, that metabolism slows down in the absence of carbohydrates. Really? So um, let, let's see what else would cause that. Um, two, we know that one of the early stages of insulin resistance is gonna be, this is Neil Barnard's work, right? It was intramyositis, mm -hmm. 
uh, fat accumulation, right? These lipid droplets mm -hmm. that are ectopic or they don't belong inside, inside the muscles, not the stuff you can see on the outside. Right. Um, and part of what happens is not only does it affect your ability to take up glucose and insulin efficiently, leading to hyperinsulinemia, and hyperinsulinemia is part of one of the two major factors required for obesity. Mm -hmm. um, but the other, the other thing it does is there's oxidative damage from, that, from those lipids that affect your mitochondria, slowing down your metabolism. Mm -hmm. So that diet is going to slow down your metabolism in addition to the avoidance of carbohydrates. Um, Interesting. Also, if you look, the predominance of weight loss, or at least far higher than other than, than if you went on a plant-based whole food, whole food plant-based diet, uh, you lose lean mass. So I always tell people that the, the ketogenic diet is the fastest way to get the scale down within the next couple of weeks, but you're losing water, you're losing muscle, right? right? And so you're probably the first person to regain weight as well. Right? So all of that's going to cause, any diet causes, any weight loss causes a slowdown metabolism. There's no, there's no like speeding up your metabolism by, it, it, it's part of our nature, natural response to prevent us from starving to death. But it, it particularly slows down when you go on these, these um, carb-free diets. That's fascinating. Oh, I'm so going to be doing some more deep research into that. Because, you know, I get lots of questions on the ketogenic diet and blah, blah, blah. But um, my other question was, you know, let's, if you could talk a little bit about the lifestyle risk factors, like why would working at night cause you a higher risk for obesity, diabetes, things like that? Mm -hmm. Uh, we get a little bit into the weeds and, and just because this is the stuff that I know and that I've read and that, that we know so far doesn't mean we have all the answers, but right. But at least something for people to think about. Right. So I think you got to think in terms of our body likes being in like a synced circadian rhythm, right? So just to think of it simply, right? We, we have a circadian rhythm, right? It's a, a roughly 24 hours. I think it's technically like 24 hours and 15 minutes, but, but. We basically have this 24 hour rhythm and there's a central kind of clock in our brain and it's very generated based on kind of light, the light dark cycle. And so when it's light out, uh, we produce melanopsin, we don't produce melatonin and we're awake. And it turns out, and then when it's dark out, we cease producing that. We're not exposed to blue light, which by the way, everyone is now at night, but um, then we would go to bed and then wake up again in the morning. But it turns out it's not just sleep and wake that have a circadian rhythm. Every cell in the body does. Mm -hmm. And our body's health is maximized when everything's synced together. And so the, um, the digestive system is very related to that. Um, your uh, neuroendocrine function is very related to that. So for instance, we produce the most insulin in the morning. Uh, you kind of wake up and you produce a big spike of insulin. We also produce cortisol in the morning, which everyone's, oh, I shouldn't have a lot of cortisol. Well, cortisol is part of our natural, natural function and it wakes you up and you have lots of energy and you go and you hunt for food and you, you, you come back and you eat and then you absorb it and everything works well. As the day goes on, we produce less insulin naturally and, mm. and we also become more resistant to its action. Mm. So if at night we are eating extra food, we're producing extra insulin less more fat storage um, in order to accommodate that. But we're also resistant to the insulin, so you're really gonna store extra fat at that point. Um, mm. Turns out that when you don't get adequate sleep or your cycles are disrupted, that insulin and other digestive, I mean, other neuroendocrine hormones that, that govern fat storage and appetite, like leptin and ghrelin and things like that, they're all connected. And in the absence of a good sleep cycle, it all gets disrupted. Mm. So in fact, you it's, um, if you were to do a study and retake an animal and, and, and get rid of its pineal gland so it can't produce melatonin, it immediately becomes insulin resistant. Wow. Yeah. That is fascinating. And so, so, so while melatonin in and of itself is more associated with insulin resistance, right? Because melatonin's high at night and we're insulin resistant at night, the absence of melatonin throws the whole thing off and you end up storing fat. And that's just one piece of the equation, right? There's dysregulated eating, there's, there's sleep deprivation. We know from a gut microbial perspective, that if you were to take a lean, take a what's called a germ-free mouse, right? So a mouse that's bred not to have its own, to not have its own bacteria. And if you were to do a stool transplant from a lean person and feed the mouse its normal food, it would be lean. If you take an obese person's stool, the mouse would become obese. If you take someone who's jet lagged or sleep deprived and is lean, and you put that stool in the mouse, the jet lagged stool creates an obese mouse. 
right? So something's happening at a microbial level, it's happening at the genetic level. There are a lot of epigenetic changes with things like jet lag and sleep deprivation. Wow. There's other studies that have shown that sleep deprivation, I believe it was, this was done in, I think it was residents, it could have been medical students, um, where they, they slept, sleep deprived them systematically, woke them up every hour, uh, and within two and a half days, they had diabetic level insulin resistance. Really? Yeah. So, so you see, that's what people, we, 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 we really fixate a lot on sleep because yeah. some of our patients have poor sleep hygiene and, and or sleep apnea. Um, and some of our toughest patients to manage are, are night workers. Wow. Okay. So if you have someone, unfortunately, so like when I was deployed overseas, I worked at night for almost five months and that's yeah. so my family and I could be in contact because I had kids and they were here, my husband and I was over there. Um, and it was really hard. It was, it did mess with me. I didn't gain like a lot of weight, but it messed with my sleep. It messed with everything and everything it was just wacky. Lowers the um, IQ a little bit, I think. Yeah. It's not good for your doctor to have a lower IQ. No. That's not a good thing. <laughs> good thing I was younger. Um, but what about for those people who can't, you know, Change, change their, their job, job. right yeah. so what do you do we try um so we try again this this is not based on concrete studies this is based right. on something right? trying to use logic but right. we try to make sure that they it, and it's not social but we have a i'd say a lot of patients come to us because we work in this enormous medical system with 60 or eighty thousand employees and so we see a lot of young nurses who just mm. graduated and they're stuck on night shifts because you know lowest on the totem pole you have to right. you have to work the nights um and so when we, we've actually seen people who went from nursing school to work we've seen them through that transition and we were very scared and we try to get them on uh, do a couple things so um we um we try to make sure that their their schedule is kept the same all the time mm. it's not ideal right but it'll be tougher on your body if four days a week you're working nights and three days a week you're trying to live like a, a normal daytime person. So try to get some sort of rough schedule going. And we also play around with time-restricted feeding. Mm. So I guess maybe it's a term for animals, but yeah, but, but you know, maybe an eight hour window of eating. And okay. generally speaking, we're like, you don't need it work. That, that particularly for nurses, <laughs> nursing stations at night tend to be, uh, I'm sure you remember, they're pretty yes. much moms in there. Yeah. Well, I, I, would, every I, <laughs> I would bring things to the nurses. So we were right. friends. I mean, they could really make you or break you as a resident. Let me tell you, that's they they special. They used to, after, not as an intern, as an intern, no one likes you, but after that, they would, they would, I would come in the middle of the night when I was having a bad night and they would always feed me. <laughs> that's hilarious i mean yeah I would, and my daughter because she's applying for residencies as well i was like you make friends with your nurses i don't care what you're doing or who you're with you make friends with your nurses. i mean gonna, it's just a good amazing in general like why wouldn't you want to be oh friendly, well working we've all we've all had colleagues who chose not to do that so. <laughs> but um as far as when you have this time restricted feeding because that was the other question i was going to ask you um is so let's say you have a, a regular day, regular schedule. What would be the ideal timing feedings, number of feedings? Is there um, evidence of uh, maybe eating more in the morning because you said you're insulin sensitive? What, what would be that suggestion? Oh, we're talking about night shift or, or just anyone in general? Or just anyone in general. Yeah. Okay, so, so there is, I'm sorry, I can't name the study for you, but there is, there is evidence in general that eating in the morning helps. And we've seen that with our patients. So a lot of people come and they're like, hey, I time restrict, I eat eight or 10 hour window. Our 600 pound patients do that, right? They don't eat breakfast. They tend to eat like two, three o'clock at night until they go to bed um, and sustain 600 pounds, right? That's time restricted feeding. Um, but there's, there's, there are several studies which demonstrate if you time restrict, um, then eating the exact same food earlier on is associated with weight loss compared to, to later on. Wow. And, and it does make, for, for the reasons that we discussed before, right, you have the circadian rhythm. So um, it, it, seemed, it does make sense. I mean, it makes sense that your body's like, okay, I'm going to, you need this energy <laughs> to go hunt your animals or go hunt whatever, gather whatever you know, it is that you're doing. I think so. I'm not even sure that the food 
is right. I, I don't even know if that's the exact, you know, who, 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 it's hard evolutionary to, to know exactly everything, right? There's also could make sense of like, why do you want potentially like bacteria laden food sitting in your stomach while you're sleeping, right? And maybe we were incentivized not to have that. You know? That's um, true. And you could be awake to throw up if you ate something bad. <laughs> Yeah. Makes sense. And the bacteria, I mean, so you're seeing improvements in anxiety, depression, <clears throat> all these type of things as well. Do you see, do you find that this is fairly a dramatic change early on or is it just kind of more gradual or, or uh, what do it, you it is, is, is a variety of responses. I would say the most, so when I have patients that stick to a, let's call it a mainly whole food plant-based diet. Some of them will do it like mm -hmm. whole food plant-based, but then maybe fish twice a week, right? So um, they chemically don't seem that much different. Uh, I know I know there's some, like I personally don't do the fish, but um, based on, on larger studies and then just, you know, guilt drives a lot of stuff. So anyway, <laughs> apparently fish anymore, I eat it. But, um, but um I, and I've seen, and what you see is, you see people, even if they come in kind of grumpy, apathetic, guarded, you know, they're smiling. Um, and people just get happier and their energy is better. And, and that happens very quickly. And I've had, I've had patients with, with, I mean, this is not, not a mood thing, but I've had patients with known intractable coronary disease on every med you can imagine, multiple, you know, bypass and stents and you know, on vasodilators and, and within five days of a whole food plant-based with fish twice a week. You know, I said, if you want to compromise, do the fish twice a week, able to walk a mile when they previously had a half. I mean, this is five days, mm -hmm. people in their seventies. Um, and they're happy about it. You know, does everyone stick to it? I mean, it doesn't make sense to me, but you know, not everyone sticks to it, but, but you see responses almost immediately. And I think part of the reason is that, if you look at, there was some interesting studies that I, I talk a lot about with patients. So they, they compared children in, in rural part of Burkina Faso in Africa that were eating this agrarian, uh, you know, fruits, veggies, legumes, grains, seeds, and compared their gut microbial profile. So what microbes they had in their guts and their the metabol metabolic outputs of those. Mm microbes. And you compare them to kids in Italy and America. And the kids in Italy and America had profiles that looked like people who are obese and diabetic, though the kids weren't. And the Burkina Faso kids had lean person, healthy microbes. And when that same concept was tested on adults, okay, we'll give you the agrarian whole food plant-based diet versus the American diet. Within 48 hours, now our gut microbes are often quite set within two to three years of life, but the metabolic output is different. And the metabolic output within 48 hours of a whole food plant-based diet starts to match the lean, healthy wow. uh, Burkina Faso kids. And within 48 hours of not eating like that, you're back to where you are. Wow. So it, it does make sense that, that the infrastructure is being laid down within days that would mm -hmm. make you feel, feel a little better. I mean, right. there's a lot of complicating factors. Um, right. But, but at least I, I tell people, at least get, get your infrastructure right. And then it doesn't mean you get off antidepressants, but maybe it'll work better. Yeah. Well, I mean, when people start to focus on just eating healthier, they also start focusing on, I'm going to start moving more, which helps with mood. Then you also start thinking about more mindfulness, like you're describing. All right. of that is going to help with the, you know, right. your mood set. There was a lady I interviewed in New Zealand. Um, and she was not doing plant-based, but she, they were doing micronutrients with kids with ADD. Um, and they were being like really, you know, dietary levels of, of a certain micronutrients. And they were having phenomenal success. So I'm like, well, why don't we just have them eat plants? <laughs> so she's like, well, I can't promote a certain diet. It's like, yes, you can. <laughs> but, you know. Um, so when you started your plant-based journey, what was the impetus? What was the, how did that all start? Let me see. I, I, I tinkered, a, a, you know, off and on for a little bit with vegetarian. I didn't know. I mean, I was already practicing obesity medicine. It's, it's, but I hadn't, I hadn't, I was practicing with vegetarian and 
I remember my mother made veal for some, she does this great old cuisine cooking. And I was like, I can't swallow this. I don't, you know, and you know, everyone made fun of me. And then, you know, I ate like a, a bite and I was like, forget this. But within, within a couple months, I, I drifted back. Um, I would say this was in 2010 or 2011. Yeah. Um, I'd had shoulder surgery. I was totally miserable, but I was living in, a house temporarily for three months. Um, so I had no TV, no internet. So it was great. So I was reading, I was meditating twice a day. I was actually recovering from shoulder surgery. So I wasn't doing my normal crazy exercise. Um, and I was doing a lot of reading about um, plant-based diets and kind of lifestyle manipulation of things. And it turned out that my cholesterol had gone way up in the setting of kind of eating junk, junky stuff. On the, when I had my first shoulder surgery and I was all down, I'm never gonna play tennis again, I'm not gonna throw. And then I was like, you know what, I'm gonna eat healthy, I'm gonna take care, and then I had pizza on the way, right? So, from surgery. And my cholesterol hit 290, which I was like, this is ridiculous, my stupid family history, how can I have cholesterol at 290? This is, you know, everyone else is on Lipitor, you know, God damn it. Um, <laughs> And it didn't, it took a couple of months for me for this to kick in. But uh, when I had the space taking away TV and internet and, right, and, and sports, um, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I said, you know, I'm going to do this. And I, I could, if it doesn't bore the listeners, I remember the day I did it, I was, I had done plenty of reading. I think at the time, maybe I'd read, done read, maybe I was reading um, the China study. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I went to, I was living in Queens and I went to a Whole Foods in Long Island and I, I made myself fresh food. It was a organic spinach salad with a little bit of olive oil, pine nuts, uh, sliced pear and organic pecorino Romano cheese. Um, probably with like lemon squeezed over it. And I was laying down in bed, I fell asleep early and I woke up with reflux. And I'm like, all right, that's it. This is enough. I'm done. And I was like, I'm just gonna go. I'm gonna do it. And that—that that was it. Like that moment. Wow. So, but 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 understand, it's not like I hadn't like done the read. I was reading for my own interest. I, and and like for my patients, I was not reading to like, okay, I'm gonna do this. And right. I didn't think lose weight, but I happened to lose like 17 pounds at the time. You know, it was it was I had to buy all new clothes. All the craziness just from from change of diet. It was not in the setting of a ton of exercise. So, so you said you do crazy exercise. What is your exercise regimen? Uh, I, I play sports. So I don't, I don't love exercising for the sake of it. I, I, I believe in it. I just, it, to me, it's like homework. So I, I, <laughs> tennis is my favorite thing. I, I debate whether I'm playing. I, I retired from tennis two days ago, but then yesterday someone asked me to play a league match. So I did. So I unretired for the day. I'm not sure. I go. I go back and forth. My, my body's have gotten a little old to, to be playing with 20. I don't know. Do you, you know Dr. Kim Williams? Yes. Yeah, so he's, he plays like crazy. He's something else. He's very, right. very good. He actually teaches people. I don't know how he has time. He travels. I don't know. Yeah. But, <laughs> so as far as um, when you said, so did you find that, were you having less shoulder pain too when you switched over? Well, I will say I had two shoulder surgeries. I needed a second shoulder surgery after I had made the change um, mm. because I had, it's called a frozen, my shoulder froze after the first surgery. Um, my recovery was immediate from the second one, but I, I, can't, I can't say that was the case or not. I can say while plant-based, I had subsequently had hip surgery um, mm. and recovery from that was much smoother. But again, it's, it's a different joint. I, you know, yeah. well, it's still up and... But the recovery times seem to be a lot smoother the second time around. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I ended up having adhesive capsulitis in both shoulders, but it was because of the plant-based diet. Because I'm, I'm hyper, I was hypothyroid since the birth of my second kid. So he's going to be 24 next month. And I developed Hashimoto's. So I was just taking my meds. And about 15 years in of being hypothyroid, I went to a plant-based diet about eight years ago. And lo and behold, I didn't know my thyroid get better. My thyroid got better, but I was still taking medicine. <laughs> and I was like, I'm hyperthyroid. Um, and I ended up with this adhesive capsulitis. It was the only risk factor I had. And it was horrible. 
two years of dealing with this. I, I would say adhesive capsulitis is not life affirming. I know people go through worse than that, but <laughs> it's horrible. I did not sleep through the night for three months, so oh, I, I don't. It hurts really. so bad. Oh well, you when can I, do anything, and it just oh, hurts. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, no. That was that was. That was bad. I did. It was. It was three nights, three months before, and then after I had the, the surgical revision for it, mm. um, everything went away like snap. I mean, I had to like rehab, but but it was, it was pretty amazing. I mean, I was, after the second surgery, I was within a month and a half. I was playing tennis again. Oh, that's amazing. No, I mean, I got to the point like people would grab my arm and they literally couldn't, like it wouldn't move. Like I yeah. was like, and then it moved to the other arm. I think there's like 16% of people get it in the other shoulder. Like, of course I'm going to get in the other shoulder. Uh, but it hurt. Like when you just, you weren't expecting to do something, you grab something and it's like the shock. And it was like, oh, yeah. it's like, you yeah. know, you take these things for granted until they're broken. Yeah. But yeah, that was a really wild ride. I was like, I'm going to have to keep an eye on patients' thyroid medication because that was 15 years. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. It's like we, we keep such um careful track of people's labs that you know every yeah. you know it'll be six months six weeks or three months after the first time they see us so even if they do we'll we'll keep an eye on it anyway yeah. um but uh yeah i've seen people with hashimoto's post-pregnancy where, where it just disappears on its own uh eventually yeah. um as long as your thyroid isn't totally burnt out i mean that's the key yeah, not I still take med. It's the only medicine I take, but it's a much lower dose yeah. than it was, which yeah. was crazy. But if I can get an early patient, oftentimes I can get them off the meds. And um, yeah. as far as when you said you're talking about diabetics, I do always like to kind of reemphasize. So those who are on, you know, hypoglycemic insulin, those type of things. How quickly have you noted? like people stopping insulin. I mean, I know my protocol, I keep a really close eye on them. What is your um, typical patient response when you it have someone? Really, it really depends what a patient's willing to do, how much we trust them, right? Because, mm. right, so there's the slow death, right, of hyperglycemia, and then there's like, I'm killing you tonight, right? right. Of <laughs> so we gotta be really careful. You have right. to have trust, you know, dealing with a patient recently who's who's just you know lightly depressed and just feels amotivational i'm like well we, we can't go all out then because if you're not prepared to check your blood sugar four times a day this is dangerous so we right. need to put it on top of that that said you know i'm trying to think the I've had patients on about three four hundred units of insulin that we've gotten off and sometimes it takes six plus months and sometimes it takes less than that mm. it really depends on how serious you're going to go now that said there are different ways to go about it, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have patients who are not gonna do everything that I tell them to do, but they're willing to restrict carbohydrates. And so they'll, but if they don't take in stuff that requires insulin, you know, you, you really decrease your insulin need. They combine that with weight loss and that's fine, but they haven't really completely fixed the infrastructure. Um, and I've had some people who've gone back and forth and we're working on that now. So mm. they just, they, they, they came from the world where, okay, you're diabetic, you don't need carbohydrates, you won't need insulin. And I was like, okay, but that keeps backfiring. You keep getting acidosis, acidosis issues. Um, let's try a little bit differently. So we'll negotiate. Okay, fine. You're not going to eat grains yet because the grains are, you know, we're spitting in the wind a little bit, but they'll, they'll make sure they're getting legumes in twice a day, as opposed to just, you know, steak and cheese and 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 vegetables right. so um and we find that what i found is that they're still able to get off of the, the 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 sugars might not go down quite as fast because if like if you don't eat any carbohydrates your blood sugar's not going to spike but they get down to a relatively a safe level where we can get them off insulin very quickly right. two months six weeks you know from like 100 units pretty quickly right. um, eating you know beans and greens minuscule amounts of fruit and nuts and seeds right and that's like that's a starting point and it's pretty damn healthy you know right um, right yeah right. so the goal is and i try to go through okay this is what causes insulin resistance right and we talk about hyperinsulinemia oxidative stress the two major drivers of obesity so mm -hmm. but it turns out that you know um you need oxidative stress insulin resistance and excess gluconeogenesis is really what causes diabetes. I don't know, might be oversimplifying a little bit, right? So, but what shuts off 
gluconeogenesis. Well, metformin does, and GLP-1 agonists do, but what else does? Um, uh, Short-chain fatty acids produced by your gut microbes when you eat prebiotic food. So it seems that it's fiber-resistant starch, antioxidants seem to be the thing that makes the most sense to eat. So it's a pretty easy selling point intellectually for patients. It takes a little bit of time sometimes to get them comfortable with the concept because for 15 years, they've been indoctrinated by, by diabetic educators a different way to go about doing stuff. Right, absolutely. So can you explain, just for those who aren't familiar with the concept of oxidative stress and the mitochondria and what all that means exactly? I'm trying to think like a, <laughs> right? So a lot of metabolic processes will cause um, free radical production, right? And, and these free radicals are then kind of, kind of, kind of pick away at, at your normal metabolic function. And that happens just by living, mm -hmm. right? And so you can, you can think about like diffusing some of these free radicals by eating a lot of these antioxidants. And antioxidants are not a vitamin E pill, antioxidants are. The, the, the myriad tocopherols, right? That would be the example. Um, and so diets high in them tend to result in better outcomes for pretty much everything. Mm. Um, and what's interesting is that studies have shown that if you, if you block the production of these re reactive oxidative species, then you cannot generate obesity. So they've done this really? and yeah, they've done this in, in, in mice. And, and, and what's interesting is two things, two things. So is that and insulin, right? So hyperinsulinemia, but not the hyperinsulinemia because you ate a piece, some brown rice. It's, it's abnormally high, so high fasting insulin, abnormal spikes after you eat. Mm. And mice have, I believe, I always mix up mice and rats, sorry. But mice have two different insulin genes. So if you can breed one with only one insulin gene, then it can never produce this hyperinsulinemia. It can't produce enough insulin to create that problem. They can't become obese. Hmm. So, wow. so, right? So you have like your two pathways. So, okay, there you go again. Improve insulin sensitivity and reduce oxidative damage. Right, right? absolutely. But the same yeah. stuff with fatty liver and diabetes and fatty pancreas and, right, and excess just adiposity in general. So what is your take on oil? Do you recommend patients go completely oil-free? Do you say it's okay to have some? What, so the, what is your... If someone asked me what's ideal, we're like, yeah, you do not have need to add oil. I mean, the one, the one take is, and I'll say full disclosure, um, my fear of dementia has me taking a very tiny amount of algae, algae omega-3 every day. Right. Um, right. Though I think it's still debatable, the value, so I discuss that with patients. Um, I don't think anyone, after the way I guess I describe it to them, I think maybe only one patient's ever converted to taking this stuff. Sure. Um, but generally speaking, I tell patients no. And I say, if you are going to use oil, then positively try to avoid saturated fat. Mm -hmm. And if you are going to use oil, try not to cook with it, right? Just drizzle a tiny amount of high-grade olive oil after the fact. You can use about a tenth of the amount, right? And you do less damage. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's some, it's just interesting to hear the debates. Um, I, I tend to encourage my patients to be oil-free just because it's unnecessary calories. But right. the the key for me is like, I just, we don't know, you know, some people say it's not going to be cardio, it is cardioprotective, some say it isn't. Uh, but my patients who I've seen with diabetes who embrace a whole food plant-based diet, They'll, I'll, you'll see them become more insulin resistant, even with a high amount of nuts. So I think it's any type of fat, personally. Um, that seems to be a, a continual. Well, yeah, make sure that the yeah. fat. Low fat. Do you, do you try to prescribe a, the lowest fat as like under 10% or do you have a percentage or you just say like, well, let's just eat healthier at the I, beginning? I get patients out of thinking about the minutia. Right, so just very focus rich. on the foods. I'll, I'll talk about percentages. Or, I mean, we get a lot of people worried about protein, so we'll, we'll talk about, and, and I, I see a specialized population. Right? A lot of my patients have already had bariatric surgery before they come to see me. Mm. So we have to make sure that we're not, we're not creating um, nutrient deficiencies, but it's, it's not, usually it's not that, that hard. Right. Um, and so we, I, I don't say keep your calories to under 10%. And I don't actually, we almost never have people count calories. 
So it makes, it makes it harder. We, we almost never make them have calories, but we say like, okay, if we design what a plate looks like, I say, okay, maybe one palm full of nuts per day and maybe a, you know, a tablespoon of some form of seeds. And mm. um, you can have some avocado, but pretty much otherwise, you know, if we're really going ideal here, stay away from fat otherwise. Yeah, gotcha. So what does that work out to, 10, 15%, you know? <laughs> yeah, it seems to be whenever I've even done my own. I always tell people you're fiber deficient, so let's let's aim for fiber. That's the one number you want to focus on, let's focus on grams of fiber. And right, so right. <laughs> it's a little challenge for them, and I think they're always surprised. It's like, geez, yeah. it's a lot of plates. <laughs> yeah, I had a really fun interview with, um, uh, you know, the inventor of the glycemic index. And so um, the amazing thing is these vegan plant-based and people are so surprised by that. I was like, well, yeah, because it's insulin, you're promoting insulin sensitivity when you're eating a high complex carbohydrate diet. <laughs> so amazing to me. Um, as far as any final advice, I know I've kept you, bless your heart, um, for the hour and I so appreciate your time. Is there any final advice that you have for someone who is suffering from obesity or maybe they're really struggling on um, the lifestyle stuff. Like what are the first few steps that you feel like people are easy to implement and what they can be doing to move down the path of a healthier lifestyle or, or any other thoughts or yeah. suggestions? I mean, this is very general because I, I, we're very careful to try to, well, the, the scientific concepts are pretty much not fixed because we're still learning a lot of new stuff, but they're, we can't change the laws of physics on people. There are a couple of obvious stuff. So um, one is I, I tell patients if you're going to do like something, so is to stop snacking. That's mm -hmm. like easy thing to do. Stop snacking, stop drinking calories. Right? We, we cut back calories, stay away from stuff. Two is, okay, let's start, stop, get out of the vernacular of talking about macronutrients as if like they're all the same. So um, mm -hmm. come in and tell me you're low carb or the carb this or like low fat or let's, let's get out of that and, and start moving towards real food. So unrefined food as much as possible. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, I think if, as people make that move, then you'll start seeing better appetite regulation, better control and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last thing is, is give yourself a cutoff time when you're done eating. That's, yeah. a bit, that's, that's in the outset. Long term, get in your mind that you're going to be an exerciser. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be, you know, going to boot camp or, or you know, playing USTA tennis. But <laughs> it means that, that you know, I, I'm in New York City. We walk everywhere. Mm -hmm. right? So um, we have to think about our steps. Is it, but um, outside, you know, when you're living, driving everywhere and you live in the suburbs or, you know, rural places, then, then you got you to gotta start moving every day. Mm -hmm. and get used to that being a part of life and, mm -hmm. and you'll feel better for it yeah i mean because or if the weather's bad how are you going to move inside or what are you going to do i think that's really important like i do jump roping when i can't run or in kettlebell I love kettlebell. but you know those those are things that you can do even jump roping is actually less strenuous on the joints than yeah. um running it's really it's it's a fun weighted jump ropes um but yeah there's just something tight like you said tai chi yoga YouTube videos, dancing, whatever. Doesn't matter movement. what, right? So movement. If if you weigh three hundred fifty pounds and you walk three miles, you're going to burn a lot of calories. Right? Oh my goodness, calories. yeah. But mm. if you're not used to walking more than a thousand steps a day, it's not going to happen. So the key is do something every day. Start creating routines and habits. You wake up at the same time. You go to bed at the same time. You prepare your food the same. Like just that's that's creating those habits, and then everything else can be tweaked from there. Yeah, there's two books um, that I really encourage, and you may be familiar with them. One is called Atomic Habits um, by James Clear. I interviewed him, and it's really interesting. I like that book for creation of healthy habits. Um, it's a little bit cumbersome for people. He, I don't necessarily agree with how he stops the bad habits, but the creation of healthy habits is a really good way to do it. And the other one is The Craving Mind. This one helps stopping the bad habits by Dr. Deb Brewer, who I'm I think I mentioned before, um, really cool mindfulness, becoming aware, using curiosity, and people just become disenchanted with the habit. So it just kind of fades away. It's really cool stuff. Um, but yeah, those two books, if you're familiar with the research, it's really, it's pretty, pretty amazing.
but um but thank you dr king for so much of your time we so sure. appreciate your expertise and i'm sure we could just keep picking at you for a while but i'm so it's just yeah. so fascinating well, Hours. It's fun. Yeah, because you you meet an obesity doc, typically they're like saying ketogenic diet, they're doing pushing surgery or just drugs, but it's really refreshing to see someone who's yeah. plant based and approaching the lifestyle approach. So we we thank you for your work. Thank you.